and the sight and sounds of college football is certainly upon us. College students are moving back into their dormitories across the nation and getting ready for that next year of college classes. Joining us today from Clemson University is Paula Beecher, and from Iowa State is Mike Gall. On this episode of FieldLink, we'll be discussing everything from college enrollment at the College of Agriculture, the impact of COVID, career fairs, internships, and what the recent market is asking for in terms of demands for today's college agriculture students. In addition, Jody Lawrence will join us from Nashville to touch up on the commodity markets. And finally, we'll visit with Chris Williams from the Helena Products Group. Chris will share some insight around sports turf and sports turf management. Stay tuned for FieldLink. Joining us here today on FieldLink are... Two representatives from universities across the country that really are at the top of their game. Joining us today from Clemson University is Paula Beecher and Mike Gall from Iowa State University. Guys, uh, welcome to FieldLink. Thanks for for having us. us. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, really excited to have both of you on the show today. I I know we've worked together for many, many years. And and certainly, folks, uh, two of the top uh, recognized individuals in their role with career services and helping young people in their respective colleges find their journey as they look for homes and careers uh, down the road. You know, a lot's happened over the last several years uh, here. I know all of us are exiting kind of that COVID phase right now. But uh, Paula, why don't you share a little bit of some of the things happening at Clemson University and and uh, share a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I've been at Clemson for 16 years, and my role at Clemson has changed a little bit over the course of the last few years, but I'm director of alumni and career services. Um, I always say I have the best job in student services, the most fun job. I get to see students be successful and help give them the tools to go to that next step which led into me taking on the alumni role because a lot of our alums are students that I've worked with in the past or employers that I work with currently to place our students. So it was a natural fit and really fun for me. Um, We have definitely seen trends over the last, uh, and before Clemson, I was at LSU. So I've been in the industry for 25 years and uh, we've definitely seen trends change. And I think the COVID pandemic put a whole new spin on our lives and the way we do business and the way we communicate with students. And I'll be interested to hear what Mike says. I don't think we have it figured out yet. We're just rolling with the punches and trying new things, throwing darts at a dartboard and seeing what's working. But um, definitely a new crop of students, um, new crop of students that learn differently, that want to interact differently. So we're constantly trying to change with that. Well, thank you, Paul. Paula. And uh, joining us from Ames, Iowa at Iowa State University is is Mike Gall. Mike, uh, welcome to FieldLink. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. So like Paula, uh, Mike Gall here, I'm, I'm solely career services. Uh, I've been in this role for uh, 24 years. Uh, this will be my 25th career fair here in about a month and a half. So boy, time flies when you're having fun. But, you know, to Paula's point, we do have the best jobs on campus. Um, you know, watching these students succeed, it's it's second to none in terms of rewarding out there. So, yeah, a lot of trends, a lot of, a lot of new mindsets out there, and it's still an amazing time. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely a different normal. Definitely a different normal. Well, Paula, how, how does enrollment look for the College of Agriculture at Clemson University? So our enrollments look really good right now. Uh, we always say enrollment has a little bit to do with 
academics and a lot to do with the culture and, and popularity of university. So um, we had a little friend called Dabo that came to Clemson about um, 10 years ago. And our enrollments have just extremely uh, exploded since that time. So um, university-wide, we had over 57,000 applications last year for our freshman class. Um, so we have a lot of students. In our college, our enrollments continue to increase. Not as much. The last five years, we've definitely had a small increase in enrollment, but not like we were seeing in 2013, 2014. Um, we're also seeing a trend that we're really investigating right now and exploring further is most of our students are graduating in three, three and a half years versus the traditional four year. They're coming in with so many high school credits. Um, so that affects your total enrollment. So although we're getting good freshman class, our total enrollment's not growing that exponentially. And, and we are seeing data results that that's one of the indicators of that. Awesome. And Mike, tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you're picking up at Iowa State. Well, enrollment-wise, much like Paula, yeah, we've we got a little bit of a football resurgence thanks to uh, Mr. Matt Campbell out there. But uh, Enrollment this year looks to be pretty good. I think our freshman numbers, from what I heard from our marketing team, is the the freshman numbers are up, which is great. Transfers, a little bit flat, which is not surprising coming out of COVID from a lot of the community colleges. And our international numbers are up, which you would expect them to be, obviously, probably everywhere because they haven't been coming the last couple of years. So enrollment-wise, um, it's looking good. And, you know, I'm partial to this group. I'm sure Paul is too, but you always want to see that freshman number up because, you know, it's such an exciting time of their life to come here and and to have that four-year experience. It's so much fun to watch them grow. So I was glad to see that those numbers were up this year. And um, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, when we get to the major part there, but we definitely have some increases in several of our uh, our college numbers there too from, from big majors. So yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we go there, Mike? Um, you know, you're right. Uh, fall is a great time. You got that freshman class, a tremendous amount of energy. We talked about it earlier. Football season is here. Uh, you know, just the newness, the students, parents unloading their kids <laughs> into dormitories and just all of the overall energy on campus is an exciting time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's always that energy the first week and you got to love the first day, right? When you get to campus and and <laughs> at 730, there's kids <laughs> that have been here a half hour trying to figure out what class I'm going to. Um, but it's a great energy level and you can just tell it's an exciting, exciting time uh, of their life out there. But when we look at like specific majors within our college this year that have shown some uh, some good growth. I mean, one, I just talked to a, a good colleague of mine in animal science, and they're up to about 1,100 um, uh, students right now in that major, which is our biggest major. And, you know, I suspect like a lot of the big schools, those anti majors, there's probably a very high percentage that are coming in as pre-vet, which um, we'll talk more about, I'm sure, as we go through this. But the vet... The demand for vets right now is just off the charts good. So um, that was an area that's got a lot of growth. The Ag Biz program here as well had a significantly large uh, freshman class come in, and that was good. Their numbers have been shrinking a bit, but, I mean, you look at the job market for students in all aspects of Ag Biz, whether it's sales to merchandising to marketing, man, the demand is so good out there right now. It was really, really good to see those numbers bounce up too. And, and, and those are awesome numbers, and it's very good insight. And Paula, what, what kind of trends are you seeing at the college level? Much uh, animal science, definitely. This year, we had a huge increase. It is our largest major individually, not the largest department, but the largest major. Um, and definitely a little caught off guard by the increase. It's always 
of course, been a popular major, but um, definitely animal science. And then, yeah, our some of our traditional majors, we even saw a little bit of surge in forestry this year, not exponentially large, but um, we are seeing a few more uh, students come that way. Agribusiness always continues to be popular. I think that's just kind of our general ag major out there. Um, and, and we are hoping... Our goal is to convert those pre-vets to animal industry, animal agribusiness majors. Um, so we're seeing that as a potential for us to, to create some more supply in the animal industry versus vet school. You know, Paula, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, are you seeing some trends as we dig a little bit deeper into some of those numbers? Uh, any any different trends? But demographics, uh, are the students coming from different non-rural uh, areas? Uh, what are your colleges all experiencing in that area? Yeah, I think a big misclaimed mis- um, notion out there is that agriculture is still male-dominated. Um, for our college, it's definitely not. We're 50%, 57% female, 43% male. Uh, Clemson University actually just tipped over. Clemson is 51, 49-ish. Um, so I think that's uh, an old-timey myth out there that it's always male dominated and there are definitely still some majors that are male dominated our animal science program though 83 percent female it is definitely a female uh, dominated industry um, for us and uh, for diversity purposes we're always looking to increase that the male wise which we haven't had to do for many majors um far as urban versus suburban versus rural, it's a hard number for us to capture. A lot of students have a different definition of what I come from a farm means. Um, we've, we've started changing that to does the majority of your income come from farming? Um, but we have a very small percent, uh, probably less than 5% that are coming from the farm. Mike, what kind of trends are you picking up at Iowa State in that area? Yeah, that's interesting. I was chuckling when Paula was throwing her stats out there because ironically, we're exactly the same. It's 57% women in our college here, 43 male. And at the university level, it's the exact opposite. It's only 43% women and 57% men. But college-wide, it is uh, 57-43. And that number's ticked up the last couple of years. Um, and, and, and from... In terms of demographics, yeah, obviously this is Iowa. And so we're drawing a lot of our students from, you know, these rural areas there. But what's interesting is we've really done a pretty good job of tapping into talent from like, you know, our our border states like Illinois. We're getting a lot of students from Illinois coming here um, because they can actually come here cheaper out of state that they can go to the state school there in state. So um, we're pulling a lot of kids out of Illinois and Minnesota and Wisconsin and some of these these neighboring states there. But yeah, 57, 43. And I mean, these women, they are incredibly sharp. I look at, uh, you know, the Sigma Alpha bunch that we work with very closely. And, and boy, oh boy, they are just incredibly bright and talented women. I hear that too a lot from our employers. Um, how how much better uh, our female students are doing in interviews and in the follow up and the details. And I always chuckle when I talk to our male students and say, "Hey, you got to up your game. You're getting beat out here um, by our female population." I I agree with you 110 percent there. I just I've always contended. I, I I feel our women students take their career search and their career prep, you know, a lot more seriously than their male counterparts do. Mike, tell us a little bit about, you know, the agronomy area of at Iowa State. and So, yeah, the, the agronomy major here um, 
is is we've got a great agronomy program here at Iowa State. Obviously, I'm a little biased there, but you know. And, and the beauty of that major is that these students can go so many different ways with it. You know, you look at agronomy sales, you look at seed production, you look at the research, the plant breeding side, you look at consulting, you look at uh, precision ag pieces to it, you look at soil conservation. You know, it's ironic I say that, but actually two years ago when we, we put our top 10 list together for the unit, for the for our college of employers, usually it's all the heavy hitters like, you know, Corteva and Bear and those guys. Two years ago, it was the NRCS. They hired like 17 full-time students out of our program there. So the agronomy major, you can take it a lot of different ways. Um, you know, it, what, what, I guess what saddens me is there's not more students in that major. I know they, they had a really aggressive marketing scheme several years ago. It paid off for them. Um, the quality students in there are top-notch, but they just need so many more because the supply and demand for people in that area is huge. Just look at, you know, the uh, the uh, career day attendee list and how many have agronomic ties to it. It's just absolutely crazy. And and um, these companies have gotten pretty aggressive, too, especially on the sales and marketing side. You know, all these kids that are, are interning with them coming back for their senior year, every one of them has got, unless they've, you know, things haven't worked out, but almost every one of them has got a full-time offer from those companies out there. And, and, and so, yeah, the demand for students in that major right now is just really, really, really strong. And I think part of the problem with that too, it's not really a problem, but, but when you look at placement numbers there, that's always a major that's got a fairly high percentage of students that go on for further education. So not only are you, do you have a small graduating class to begin with? Now you've taken out maybe 25% that are going to go on for plant breeding and stuff like that that won't be entering the, 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 the employment market, the job market there. So, yeah, we need more in agronomy, that's for sure. It's a great program. Paula, are you seeing some of the same thing in turf as well as forestry, as you mentioned earlier? Yeah, 100%. I wish I could have double the number of students we have. Ours is called Implant Environmental Sciences, um, and in that encompasses horticulture, turf grass, and the agronomy areas. Um, our program is definitely research-based. Most of our students will be encouraged by faculty members to go on for a PhD or master's. Um, so I need tons more, and um, definitely the opportunities are endless in that field. In fact, we're you know encouraging a lot of our agribusiness students to take additional classes in the plant and crop areas so that they can have that basic technical knowledge, and a lot of those big crop companies are hiring them with just a surface knowledge, not as scientists, of course, but... Um, could definitely do more. Forestry for a long time was a worrisome area for us. Uh, it was not a lot of students got excited about trees. Um, in our state, it's the number one industry. And so the job market in the Southeast in general, as you all know, forestry is huge. So um, we've actually seen a little bit of, of an increase in those majors over the last few years, which is exciting. Um, I could place double the number of students. If you go down my career fair list, forestry is probably one of the top top company list there. Um, and and not just for forestry majors, but for agribusiness, our ag mechanization and business area. Um, you know, you have the manufacturing side, the procurement side, the consulting side, the, the U.S. and state forest services, of course. So I think forestry is exciting. And I think one, it's an industry that's hopefully never going away. And so one, that and agronomy, I think are foundational programs and ones we always should be concentrating on. So can I just add a couple things to that real quick here, Bill? One, I mean, Paul is spot on. I think a really deadly combination with our ag biz majors these days is an ag biz major. And it's amazing how many kids pick up minors out there, but an ag biz agronomy minor 
Agbiz Major Agronomy Minor is is a wonderful a wonderful approach for students. But our turf program here is actually housed in horticulture. Okay. And boy, we just need so many more students in turf as well. So I started my career here at Iowa State actually in the horticulture department. And I was there in the 90s. And the turf program there in the 90s was just going through the roof. And it was driven mainly because Tiger Woods came on board, right? And and so every guy that loved to play golf, boy, I want to be a golf course superintendent. And so we had, in the late 90s, we had upwards of 160 turf majors in that program. And uh, about a year or so ago, I was talking to the professor over there in Hort, and now they've only got about 30 turf majors in there. But here's what's perplexing with it, which is not perplexing, but it's great. But half of those those turf majors really are more interested in sports turf now versus the golf course side of things. So I just worry on the golf course side of things with the pandemic in terms of how golf had a resurgence and the limited number of students that are going to golf course superintendent business, there's got to be a lot of golf course superintendents out there that are thinking it's retirement time soon. And to get some qualified students in there, I think there's going to be um, some fantastic opportunities out there. And I'm on the listserv for it. And it's just amazing, these golf courses that have got, I mean, we're talking primetime golf courses, Pinehurst and Augusta National, places like that that are looking for interns that can't find them, you know. Yeah, Augusta is in our backyard and have to beg students yeah. because they have so many offers. Um, and I'll piggyback on that. So we, and don't quote me on this uh, statistic, but I think we're one of the last handful of standalone turf programs. Our degree is still in turf grass, um, but it still struggles. And, and I've honestly encouraged a lot of our employers to go to our two-year tech school program. Um, as a compliment. Um, a lot of those students are getting enough foundation, maybe not to be the golf course superintendent, but to definitely be managers of crews and things. And we just don't have the, enough numbers to fill even a third of the positions out there. Yeah, it's definitely an evolving area, that uh, turf area. This is our first year that we've actually expanded our internship program in that area. And uh, I think we had somewhere around 20 or so interns across the U.S. focusing in forestry as well as uh, the turf uh, space. And we intend to continue to grow that area. Uh, let's talk a little bit. It's been catching the headlines, especially here in the last few weeks. Uh, the cost of college, tuition, you know, expenses in the area. What are some things that you as, as faculty members are, are kind of picking up uh, from, from your students? Well, I mean, we're, we're pretty fortunate here. I mean, obviously, yeah, every class I go to and I give them the old, you know, let's talk about the job market thing, blah, blah, blah. I remind them that coming to college is the biggest investment they're going to make in their life, one of their biggest, you know, and they are given every opportunity to be successful here, whether it's through great internships with companies like Helena or the club opportunities or the study abroads or, or, any, or just their academic curriculum. And, um, you know, those that struggle are the ones that don't embrace those things there. But, but from an investment perspective, we're a land-grant school. We are actually – you know, one of the least expensive schools around from that perspective in terms of tuition here. Um, and, you know, especially as I mentioned before, we got a lot of students that are coming from Illinois because they can come here out of state cheaper than they can go in state there. But these students, honestly, yeah, it's, it's, it's on their radar screen. But I think what I admire about our students, and I'm sure Paula sees the same thing there, is that there's two things that really help them out. I'm amazed at how many kids actually graduate with zero debt. Okay. And, and a lot of that's driven by a 
these kids aren't afraid to work. I mean, in classes I go to, how many have a part-time job? And it's like every hand in the, in the, in the, in the room goes up. So they're not afraid to work and they earn a decent wage around here. And so many colleges anymore have such a robust scholarship program that, that, you know, these students that get after it and are proactive with their applications, they do very, very well from that, uh, uh, that standpoint too. So there's, there's a lot of opportunities out there to buffer that cost of that. But again, it goes back to this is an investment. Do you want an, uh, an ROI on that? You got to put yourself out there and take advantage of everything that's presented to you. And, and every school typically will do that to the student. Yeah. We have a little bit more of a challenge. Our tuition is fairly high. Our students could probably go to Iowa State too cheaper from South Carolina. <laughs> we'll take um, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, please don't. <laughs> they, uh, our, our tuition is, is not, luckily with COVID, it was the Board of Trustees has kept it pretty constant the last three years. So that's helped of tremendously. Um, but we have a big out-of-state population, about 40% out-of-state, and those students are spending a lot of money to come to Clemson. So I do see a lot of our students are graduating with more debt than maybe 10 years ago, and that worries me a little bit. Um, but I think more than tuition, it's the cost of everything else. There's fees, but then the housing costs in Clemson have just skyrocketed. I mean, a student will buy, you know, rent one room in an apartment. It'll cost them $1,000 a month. Um, when I was going to school, what our rent was like 300 for the whole apartment and we all split it, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think it's the other cost, even if they're not trying to live extravagantly, it's just these new apartment complexes and then, and those kind of things are rising the, the total cost of, of a university. But as Mike said, it is a return on investment. And I, I think college is definitely worth the investment. Yeah, I could definitely would agree with that. I, uh, I can sit back and I know I've got one daughter that's just graduated, one's currently in college. And those students, as Mike indicated, that dig in, do a little part-time work, uh, focus on internships, and, and really focus hard on those scholarships and the academics. They can get through fairly reasonably. Uh, it's the other stuff. Uh, it's the, to your point, the housing and things that we mm-hmm. you can't always control that eh, can get a little bit crazy uh, from time to time. Which brings me, I guess, to the next point. You know, uh, college, uh, four-year college, that is, it's really not for everybody. Um, are you seeing some trends where some students that are considering a four-year school but maybe hit that two-year college, uh, the technical schools uh, for maybe even before choosing to come to the four-year school? I do think uh, we are seeing our transfer numbers are increasing a little bit um, more than they were 10 years ago. Um, A lot of dual enrollment from high school, as I mentioned earlier, the students graduating quicker. A lot of times that is because they went to their two-year institution for a couple of years. Financially, it makes tons of sense. Get some of those gen ed requirements out of the way to two-year school where it's a little more economical, transfer into the four-year, finish your degree strong. Um, But we're also seeing we're partnering more with our technical colleges on some of the the degrees that may not need the four years. I don't think every student has to go to college to be successful at all. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities for a student to have a great career um, from a two-year institution. So I'm I'm one that works at a four-year institution, but I see great value in the two-year technical system. And I think it's it's always going to be a place in higher ed for that. Yeah, I would I would echo those same thoughts there. I mean, um, <laughs> there's so in the trades, especially there's so much money to be made. There's so much demand for people in those industries, and and I get it, and and we all respect it. I mean, college is definitely not for for everybody out there, and and that's fine. Okay, you know, at the end of the day, 
find your passion and, and, and go with it. But I mean, Paul brought up a really good point there, which I wasn't even thinking about there. But what, what is so perplexing these days, back when I was in school a million years ago, was how many of these students come in with these dual credits from high school. I mean, it's not uncommon to have a student come in with 40 or 50 out of high school. Okay. There's pros and cons to it in terms of maturity level and such with that. But, um, you know, we, I didn't have that growing up and, you know, just to come in with, with 12 credits or 16 credits, it's a great buffer semester for you, you know? And, and so, um, yeah, there's, there, there are a lot of students to Paul's point there that are getting out in three, three and a half years, um, um, because of these credits and, I just had that question asked in the class yesterday, you know, is, is December a good time to be getting out? And December's a wonderful time to be getting out because the reality is, look at it, what? You've got, um, you're in the peak season of recruitment, right? Everybody wants you. Your competitive numbers are two to one versus May grads, okay? And then if you do the dollar crunching, all right, what am I going to spend on another semester of going to school versus where salaries are today that I can potentially make in five months, $35,000, swing right there. And and Lord knows our ag students, they're in tune with money. And that that dollar amount really resonates with them. So we're, we're you know, we kind of got off track with this, but they're coming and going at all different times here with that. No, I agree with that December grad. I think it's a great time to graduate. And uh, from a business perspective, um, that's when companies typically are needing talent, especially in the agriculture agronomy side of the business where you know, spring season's just around the corner. We've got new budgets. Uh, boy, that's go time. And uh, uh, a great opportunity for students to consider uh, December grad. Mm-hmm. Mike, uh, you, you were involved in a recent study that uh, took a look at uh, different compensation levels. Can you tell us a little bit about that study? Yeah, we've been doing it for about 15 years. It's great because we work with collaboratively with schools like with Paula and all other buddies out there in the career service realm. And so we get about 20 schools because let me preface this because Paul and I both know that tracking students is difficult. Tracking salaries like pulling teeth, right? And so collectively we're able to get, you know, a pretty good picture of, of what's going on out there this year. I think I had uh, 2,400 salary uh, points uh, given to me and that's solely salaries versus further education. So we had a really good pool of data on that. Uh, we look at like nine different sectors, ag business, ag education, agronomy, animal science, environmental science, engineering, stuff like that. Um, and I think all of us realize, yeah, these things have got to go up this year, given everything that's going on. But um, I'm about to, to shoot it out tomorrow to these, uh, these, these colleagues of mine. And, and out of those nine sectors, the average salary increase for an entry level was 8.4%. 8.4%. Um, we saw horticulture numbers almost like 19% increase. Um, Hort historically has been a little on the low side of things, but you look at, you know, we talked about turf already, the demand there, but think about what did people do during the pandemic? They improved their homes. And so they needed what? They needed landscape designers. They needed landscape installation people. They needed nursery management. They needed greenhouse. Supply and demand, Hort majors aren't going through the roof, right? And so uh, that really favored them. But it was it was really, really interesting to crunch these numbers. Probably the most interesting report I've ever sat down and, and, and put together. Because last year, I don't know if you remember, Paul's salaries were as flat as a pancake last year. And this year, just, but, you know, like agribusiness, we had 402 or 409 salaries reported. The average salary was like 55, 6 or something out of there. So 
This just goes back to the theme that we talked about all along here. What a great time to be a student out there. Yeah. Wow. And this survey is so valuable for us. As, as Mike said, getting salaries is like pulling teeth. And so for us to be able to to tell our students um, in recruiting in recruiting new students, this is the average. This is a national average. It's been very valuable for us to have that data. And, and Bill, even it's amazing how many industry people use it too. I mean, we get calls all the time. What's the going rate for a grain merchandiser, you know, or whatever? And so by having the, for referring them this report, um, we get a lot of positive feedback on it from that standpoint too. But yeah. What a what a what an interesting year. Well, and what a wonderful tool for you know young freshmen that are you know just entering into college or seniors in high school that are looking for that next journey. They can have a a, a nice roadmap or at least a, a a point to you know direct them towards their their future from that financial perspective. And Bill, that's such a good it's such a good point that you bring up because we touched upon your investment in college, right, and that return on investment. And I'm not going to throw, you know, certain majors outside of agriculture under the bus here, but there are times when I'm sure Paul and I both scratch our head going, why are you majoring in this? Right. Okay. And so you've got to be realistic about that return on that investment. And so, you know, to see numbers like that, that are hardcore numbers there that only reinforce that uh, serves, serves all parties pretty well. Mike, uh, Paula, I want to thank you again for your time and uh, for those parents and for those students that want to see this type of report. I encourage them to where should they reach out, Mike, and, and pick that report up. Uh, it'll be posted on our website. They can uh, email me at Mike or in Paula as well. We'll all have it. Um, just email us respectively. And uh, like I said, I'm going to route out tomorrow, get any feedback, and then probably officially turn it loose uh, next week sometime. So. Let's talk a little bit about how things have transitioned. Uh, uh, Mike, you clearly have one of the top career fairs, and Paula, I know you have a really solid one as well. We uh, all Clemson. know Mike's is the best. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your career fair, Mike, but um, what I really want to go to, though, is how has that, uh, I guess, transition? What kind of trends are you seeing in the career fair side of things? Yeah, that is that is a great question because it has been such an interesting three years. So I'm going to go back three years. 2019, we had our largest fair ever. Okay. 2019, as I'm sure most schools did. I mean, they were, they were all busting at the seams. Uh, we were lucky we had 278 at that event. Um, and then 2020, you couldn't find an in-person fair anywhere in this country. And I think we were lucky to have 180 at our virtual events, okay? And then last year, we were back. We did both, uh, um, an in-person and um, uh, a virtual one there. And um, the in-person was pretty well attended. We had about 210 companies at this thing. And and now, we're back to solely in-person events, okay? There's only one. Uh, um, our engineering engineering is just blowing up, right? It's a great job, Marcus. So our engineering college has three career fairs this fall, two in person. They're the only one doing a virtual one, and it's only got like 35 companies at it. But where I'm going with this whole thing is, and even last year, this is the best part about last year's fall career fair. There was a unique energy level to it. And the reason why there was, you know, the student numbers were down a little but those that were there are the kids you wanted to be there and the recruiters wanted to be there. And so it was a great vibe. It was a great energy level. And I think it was driven by the fact of which we all know agriculture is all about this, about building relationships and be able to walk up to somebody at a career fair, maybe not shake their hand, but give them a little fist bump and, 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 and start that conversation and start to build that relationship. That's what, that's what makes these career fairs so special. And so, this year, as Paul and I were, were, were talking about, 
Criffers this year, Bill, are going through the roof. I, I can't even tell you this, but this, we, last year we had 210 as of, you know, the, the when we, we started this, this episode here, we we're at 212 and we're almost six weeks out yet. So it, there's an incredibly good chance this is going to be uh, our largest fair ever, but it's just it's just mind boggling, and 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 it's everywhere. Not only in, in in engineering, but or not only in in ag, but engineering and business, and not only at Iowa State, but every school across the country. I'm telling students right now with the career fair, people, this is as good as it gets. Okay, so so that's what I think concerns me the most about career fairs, and and Paula probably back me on this, but you know we got the companies there. Can we get the kids there? So I just really, really hope they realize how good this is. You know, versus May of 2009, which would have been the worst time to graduate from college. Now we're in spring, spring of 2023. This is the best time. This is as good as it gets. Paula, what do you think? 100% agree. Um, I Even last May, last spring, the number of job postings that were coming through the office and on the system were amazing to me. How good the market was and I got requests for career fair started in, in April. When is your career fair opening? When is your registration opening? So I kind of thought it might start getting busy, but it, and we have to max out because we of our facility we have, but across campus, the numbers are booming. Um, and our students are actually excited. Our numbers for virtual fair for both employers and students were terrible. Um, our students just did not did not convert well to that. And I think Mike hit the nail on the head. It's all about relationships. It's seeing that recruiter in person when I'm nervous and they're putting me to ease and I can have a conversation on Zoom. That's just awkward, awkward for everyone. Um, so I I talked to some employers this summer and they were still on the fence about traveling. You know, there are still some companies out there. I don't know what Helena's policy is about, but travel still on the fence. And I said, look, if you're not on campus, you're going to miss the boat. Um, I have two Zooms tomorrow with companies who are probably not going to get to come to the career fair. And they're like, when can we post? When can we get in front of students? And they're just not going to have the the reaction, I'm afraid, that they would if they were in person. I mean, it doesn't, for me, I'm happy to post and happy to help boost their, uh, their postings out there. But there's something to be said for that in person. I do worry, Mike, um, will the students show up for the numbers that we have? We'll see. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. That virtual piece, you know, it just, uh, I mean, it was for us as directors, it's easy peasy, right? You just let Creek or whoever run with it and we can kind of sit there and monitor who's on whatever chat or whatever. Um, but I remember initially, because the students had to sign up for it in advance and we hit like 1400 and I'm like, oh man, this is great. They're killing it. And then one of my colleagues out there reminded me, said, yeah, that's great, but it's how many show up that count. And I never thought of that. And I'll be damned, you know, the day of the event, like 800 showed up, actually logged on and, and, and signed up for. I think ours was half. Yeah, it was, it was, I couldn't believe it. And then to your point, Paul, about these companies that can only do it virtually, they're going to miss out. I mean, I, we had a virtual fair last year and John Deere was only coming to virtual fairs here on campus. Okay. You, you know, Bill, you've been to ours, you know, John Deere usually pulls out a lead rec center with pickup loads of resumes, okay, at an in-person event. And last year, we had a five-hour chat with uh, available. They had, um, they had 10 students log on for chats with John Deere, 10. Yeah. So these companies that, that are only going to go that route, I hate to say it, they're going to they're gonna pay the price. 
Well, I think I think you're spot on, and I you know listen, I, I'm speaking from a little bit of experience here from watching my two girls go through this uh, over the last three years. One graduating at Knoxville, one's at Montana State right now, and just kind of observing. I think they're just coveted it out. They're 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 videoed out, um, and they're really looking to make those relationships and, and those fist bumps, like you mentioned, Mike. Yeah, we just we got to get them out of that funnel and get them back to the to the new normal, you know which is part of the old normal. So <laughs> speaking about recruiting, you know, uh, are you seeing some trends? What are some things that, uh, a diff- you know, as we've got a lot of gr- farmer growers that are listening to, uh, you know, this podcast and there, a lot of them are looking for employees too, uh, many graduates. Um, are, what are you seeing maybe uh, that sector of the business doing differently in addition to a larger, a lot of the larger companies to attract the talent from your school? I'll jump in. I think, you know, it's very interesting. We have, I feel a paradigm shift a little bit in our student body and and what they're looking for. Our students seem very much more passion-driven, culture-driven than in the past. It's not just the salary. It's still important. Um, But it's not just salary anymore. They're looking in, and a lot of our companies or students will come and say, is that a family-owned company? I've never heard that really much in the past. Um, So I think some of these smaller farms or smaller corporations' businesses are attracting a certain demographic of student. Um, they're just harder to reach. Uh, I think uh, having a social media presence or some kind of web presence is still important. There's still a generation of tech savvy students um, and they're, they're getting their information online. So we try to do a good job of promoting. We do weekly newsletters for students um, and we let anybody post in that that's a legitimate business or organization. Um, and some of those are not comfortable posting on our big simplicity system or don't know how, don't have the HR people to help put them through that. So we are trying to find an avenue to help some of those businesses be successful. Um, But I think, honestly, for them to tell their story a little bit on their websites or social media, you're going to attract a certain demographic. Yeah, I think, I mean, Paul is definitely right. I mean, these students, I'm noticing that too. They're more in tune with with culture out there these days. Um, You know, and, and the sad reality, there's another pandemic going on in this country. It's called job hopping, right? And it's, you know, it's amazing how fast these students are are, are going to do it. And they're not afraid to pull the trigger. And I, I had one gal in, in her first year out had three jobs. Okay. Um, but it goes back to, you know, it's definitely not the money, but it's, it's the culture of the environment that they're in. And specifically, um, you know, that onboarding or mentoring piece that they're not getting as a result of that, that's making them look elsewhere from that standpoint. And then, you know, it doesn't help, especially with some companies that these students, I mean, I can't imagine anything worse coming out of college and working in your apartment all day long without that social interaction there too. Um, And thankfully, we're going to hopefully get out of that a little bit there. But the bottom line, even though for some people, Working remote might have an appeal to it. I will tell you right now, my experience with it is that college students coming out, they despise it. Okay. They need that social interaction and they don't need their hands held, but at least they want some mentoring and onboarding in that, in that, that process there. So it's mid-career people that, that, that uh, remote work, I think, has a lot more appeal to there. But yeah, culture is a big thing with, with that these days. 
And Mike, you hit such a good point about the job hopping. I am amazed in, in having the alumni piece in my job now of the alums that are calling me that are two or three years out and saying, hey, can you put me back on those emails? I, I want to know about your career events. I'm shopping again. Um, they're just, and it's not, I'm like, oh, are you unhappy? Is there somebody? No, I'm just seeing what else is out there. So it's not necessarily that they're having a bad experience at their jobs or positions. It's just curiosity and um, maybe lack of loyalty. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, that's interesting because, I mean, yeah, not only the job hopping, but the reneging that's going on out there with offers is amazing. And, and um, I talked to a recruiter at, an, at Cargill this summer, um, great guy, and um, he was actually on campus here this spring. And I said, I read this cool article in the Wall Street about the internship market these days and how reneging is alive and well and what some of these schools are doing. And I said, has Cargill experienced much of that? And he said, yeah. He goes, on a normal year, this is in the spring, he goes, on a normal year, Cargill would would experience maybe 15 to 20 reneges between, I guess, internships and full-time hires. He said, to this point this year, it's at 40. And then I was up there in July. And he goes, by the way, we just crunched that final numbers, and it was 80 for the year, which is, and this was Cargill, okay, one of the top companies out there. And so, it's, you know, the best way to describe it, it's the wild, wild west in terms of job hopping, in terms of reneging, in terms of ghosting. It's it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's definitely a huge culture. It makes it tough for companies uh, to, you know, you make that commitment and they want to do that. They need to do that. But Mike, you touched on something that's really critical in my mind, and that's that culture. And it's that first, you know, 30, 60, 90 days of onboarding and that long-term mentoring. I, I think that's where, you know, organizations, um, small and large, need to really try to make that commitment if they can in order to, you know, minimize, and and I don't think you'll eliminate it, but minimize some of the things that you talked about, Paula, as far as job hopping and ghosting and that sort of thing. What are some other, you know, issues that you guys see uh, on campus with students, uh, I guess, changes and trends that, uh, you know, could help some, you know, future growers or, or, excuse me, growers as well as organizations better prepare for this next uh, wave of students? Well, I think one thing I'd throw out there is, (laughs) you know, what amazed me having been, having done this for 24 years, people ask me, what are the two biggest changes you've seen in 24 years? And one is obviously the reliance on GPA. I remember back late 90s, you know, it was like every company must have a 3.5 GPA. Good luck, right? Okay. And, and the, the, the biggest, most impactful change I've seen is timing of recruitments. Okay. I think back to, to that time, people didn't look for full-time jobs. People didn't look for internships till spring break. Okay. And if you're looking at spring break for for internships or or any sort of talent, I hate to tell you what you're looking at. Okay, so I would tell companies to be aggressive and be ready to go once the doors open on college campus um, and and hit that recruitment trail hard and have their, their materials ready to go, get involved with the career fairs use their potential interns from the previous years as, as great ambassadors for them. Um, and, you know, well, we see it. I mean, Paul and I see it. We have so many students that are coming back with either a full-time offer in hand or the offer to return for that second internship. It's it's crazy. So it, timing to me is one of the most critical pieces there. You got to get in the game and you got to get in the game early. I will 100% agree with that. Early bird gets the worm, they say, right? And um, and I think the second thing is what you said earlier, Bill, invest in these students, invest in your interns and invest in your full-time employees because 
this is a different generation, um, and it's us as parents. We all have had our kids in college or, or through college, and they are used to us helping handle their lives, and they're used to uh, teachers, and in college, they have syllabuses. They have a, a laid-out plan, and when they get that first job, um, although it's good to give them creative freedom, they are still looking for some of that structure. Um, I think invest in those students and the training also, show them paths for succession. Show them how they can move up in that company, that there is a future in the company for them. Um, access to leadership. I, so many of my interns have come back in the last week or so to say hi, and I'm always like, well, I always said they come back and tell me how it was. And the ones that come back most excited are like, we met the CEO. He sat down with us and had lunch. Or, you know, we were able to tour the headquarters and actually met the whole executive team. And I don't think companies realize how impactful that is for a student to see that a CEO took a time to, to meet a college kid. Absolutely. Great, great point there. Yep. I hear the same thing. Well, uh, Paula, Mike, I really want to take this opportunity to thank you. Thank all that you do for, you know, agriculture as well as your universities and uh, helping prepare that next generation for our industry. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Bill. Yep. Thanks, gang, for joining us today. And welcome to FieldLink, uh, Jody Lawrence, uh, coming in to us from Nashville for a commentary update. Jody, uh, lots of stuff happening right now uh, across the country. Harvest is underway in some parts of the nation. And the uh, Pro Farmer Tour wrapped up here recently across the Midwest. Uh, and there's a lot of activity with the USDA. Jody, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be back. Hope everybody had a great Labor Day weekend. Absolutely. It was a great long weekend. Uh, lots happening. Uh, we had some weather events across much of the nation. It seems to be, uh, you know, the same, same old, same old, a lot of, whether it be too much rain or not enough rain, depending upon where you're at. But Jody, what's going across uh, the markets right now? How, how are things crack, uh, cracking open here at the beginning of this week? Well, uh, corn started higher uh, again this week. It started higher last week, finished higher, but uh, had a little dip in the middle higher today. And a majority of it really revolves around uh, the Pro Farmer Tour came in with a much lower than expected national corn yield estimate at 168.1 when they released their report 10 days ago. And that is uh, seven, uh, almost eight full bushels below the last USDA report on August 12th. And we've got another major USDA report on Monday, September 12th. So just in four, day, four trading days from uh, when we're recording this, that everyone expects the USDA to lower corn yield. It's just a matter of do they get aggressive like several private analysts have, or are they going to follow their normal trend of realizing there's a problem, but also being very uh, deliberate about getting there before uh, recognizing it, at least in the yield data, before the January final report. The national average of all the private uh, analysts and the other smaller crop tours that went on is somewhere in the 172 to 174 yield. And uh, just as a reminder, we started out this year with trend line yields for corn at 177, 51 and a half for beans. The August report, the USDA came in with numbers of 179 
or 175.9 yield for corn and 51.9 for beans. Bean weather's been really good in August, and uh, really just the opposite of the June-July corn weather. So what we see is kind of the odd paradox that you have a declining corn yield, uh, corn ratings, and, and you have increasing ratings and increasing yield potential for beans. And the bean yield, at if it came in at 51.9, it would be the all-time bushel per acre yield uh, record. And with 88, uh, a little over 88 million acres, it would produce uh, a massive record of, of yield, which is why you have a real disparity right now. You have corn rallying and beans falling to where the ratio is just a little bit over two to one, which is historic, historically very odd that it stays at this level for very long. Yeah, definitely uh, a lot of uh, differentiation between the USDA and what those local anal analysts are uh, predicting uh, f from, you know, the Pro Farmer Tour along with uh, many, many other uh, different uh, reports coming across and certainly impacting some of the commodity markets today as as it relates to uh, some of the speculation going on. Uh, Jody, uh, we continue to uh, have uh, some impact and f dealing with that impact from things taking place in Ukraine as well as Russia. Uh, what's new going on there and how is that impacting some of the diesel prices? Well, the Labor Day weekend saw a couple different things and some of them popped up late last week. The uh, NS1 natural gas pipeline that uh, Europe agreed with Russia to get a majority of their natural gas supplies through Russia took it down for maintenance for the second or third time since they opened it earlier this summer, and it's really causing a lot of heartburn in Europe as, they're, uh, as they head into their fall and winter and their heavy natural gas usage time just as prices begin to soar. And obviously, if Russia decided to... Uh, play their real trump card here, which is to just cut it off altogether, the world would be right back in a in just a, a really bad situation because Europe uh, is, became, is moved themselves into being too dependent on their relationship with Russia. And as Russia, obviously the rest of the world is furious with them over what's going on in the Ukraine, but Europe is handcuffed to Russia playing nice and keeping the gas pipeline open. So that's one thing that certainly is going to affect prices because, and this is really just more on the energy side, because if Europe is forced to go into the open market, whether it's to the U.S. or whether it's to North Africa or wherever else they can get natural gas, uh, any energy supply to get through their winter, then you have a real upheaval potentially in the world energy prices. And crude has dipped over the past 10 days on recession fears in the U.S., but more uh, pointedly in China because of their zero COVID tolerance. And w at one point last week, they had 40 million or 41 million people in three different cities under complete lockdown and shelter at home, just like we did at the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And if China uh, 
demand for any type of raw material, whether it's bean meal, whether it's crude, whether it's you know corn, beans, whatever the case may be, if their demand goes down, the world suffers as since China is obviously the world's number one consumer of all raw materials with their three billion plus population. So it's uh, a crazy thing with just the Russia and China how every little piece of news that comes out of there is really having an outsized effect this year uh, on you know on daily prices, uh, much less long-term direction. There's definitely no doubt about it. Uh, uh, the breaking news is certainly affecting not just the you know the food prices, but all commodity prices, including energy, and it's uh, an evolving space on a day by day, and in some cases hour by hour situation. Yes, and then you look at their. Uh, they have taken over the nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine, which is close enough to the port of Odessa, and they restored power to it, thankfully, before any major problems occurred. But when you have Russia using a nuclear power plant as a shield in a war, the world cannot feel very safe about, uh, about that situation. And certainly what's curious is nobody really knows how to, to take it because uh, similar, I look back and did some research on what happened with, when Chernobyl uh, had their radioactive leaks, what, 25 years ago, maybe even right. 30, and it, it, the price of wheat nearly doubled. And there are two things that Russia could directly influence, and we could be right back to the insanity of the markets. Uh, during the invasion, if they decide to really uh, to really become a problem and shut down natural gas to Europe, and if something very unfortunate were to happen with that nuclear power plant, yeah, definitely a whole lot of potential impact there that could happen uh, in that particular situation in the Ukraine. And back to China, certainly more and more lockdowns impacting, you know, just, you know, commodity prices, but also supply chain logistics for, for really for all products. And uh, that theme continues to carry on. So uh, with that, uh, Jody, uh, we're going to keep keep focused here on uh, as we get into fall, uh, any opportunities that you see growers ought to be taking a look at and considering uh, as we get a little closer to harvest time. Well, I would continue to look just briefly at the diesel market. We had a dip uh, early last week and or late last week and then earlier today down again into the low 350 area on the October futures. That's not the pump price and it's not what the dealer will sell it to you, but that's my reference for everything. So if Anytime you see these dips happen, uh, it, where you see the futures price between 350 and 360, continue to hedge some diesel because if Russia gets actively involved and OPEC cuts production and China uh, comes up with a way to, uh, to moderate their zero tolerance, we are, you're going to have the price of diesel go well back over $4, and you certainly don't want that going into your heavy usage needs of harvest and even look uh, look ahead a little bit into your winter and spring needs as well. Uh, the biggest opportunity right now is in corn. Uh, you're back up against the highs from last or 10 days ago from the 
pro farmer tour report and that really puts us with december corn closing today at 676 and with such spectacular basis as it's been improving all summer you're within uh, the within 30 or 40 cents in most areas of the highest price, highest total cash price basis and futures together that you could have gotten even during the uh, May-June highs. So that's an opportunity for corn. Everybody that feels good east, east, excuse me, east of Des Moines where they've got a crop and in some cases uh, a better than average crop, you're in an opportunity to really squeeze a lot of potential and a lot of profit out of the market on your corn yields. While in beans, they're a little bit more of a struggle because they are so directly influenced by China and their economy. At $14, where today's close was, any rally uh, in November futures uh, from four, that gets to 1430 to 1460 offers a buying opportunity because the U.S. weather ch uh, changed uh, and help the crop enough that that one bushel per acre that national yield has probably improved. That one bushel an acre that uh, U.S. yield has probably improved over the last three weeks is the difference between why we're not talking about $15 plus beans and thinking that $14.50 may be a cap on this market. So I'd aim for those targets. Uh, but uh, looking into 23, the thing I've been talking to everybody at the uh, at all the crop tours and everything we've been doing the last three weeks is I, I saw that uh, fertilizer prices went up again uh, at several different spots this week and with that 622 December 23 corn is simply too cheap uh, to attract the acres that are going to be needed so there's no reason to be an aggressive seller of December 23 corn. Uh, November 23 beans, uh, again, any rally that gets you at uh, up towards $14, $13.38 was today's close, is a good opportunity because we're in such a distant second to Brazil's bean crop. If Brazil has no growing problems this year and their crop that they're getting ready to plant, it becomes a real issue on where, you know, where 23 beans could be priced. So you want, you want to take advantage of anything you see that, that rallies and starts flirting with $14 for next year. Awesome. Very good advice there, Jody, uh, coming to us from Nashville today. Uh, appreciate your insight as we dive into these commodities and uh, get ready to navigate through the fall harvest season. Jody, thanks for joining us here today on Fieldlink. Thank you, Bill. Fall sports are certainly in full swing. College football is definitely consuming many American Saturdays. Today, Chris Williams from the Helena Products Group joins us to discuss the importance of sports turf management. Chris, welcome to Fieldlink. Thanks for having me, Bill. I'm looking forward to the opportunity. And Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get starting into this specialty side of the business? I took a summer job on a golf course and just fell in love with working the ground and and growing turf and, and watching people enjoy the work that we put together on a daily basis, whether it was mowing or, or fertilizing or tearing something up and building something new. It was just a, it was very rewarding to me 
to be able to do that. So did you go to college to learn more about sports turf? I did. I have a degree in turf grass operations. I graduated from a small school in Florida. At the time was Lake City Community College. It has now changed its name and they got a little fancier. It's now yeah. Florida Gateway College. Um, right. But graduated from there in 2000 and, and haven't looked back. Awesome. Chris, the uh, sports turf business, you know, how, how big is this industry? It, how, is it, how big is it getting, I should say? How big it's going to get, we really don't know. Um, sure. In 2018, it was estimated to be about a $2 billion industry. Uh, they're expecting that by 2028, that's going to grow to roughly $3.2 billion. Wow. And as you, as you visit around and see how many fields are being used, how much they're being used, you can really appreciate where that number and that growth is coming from. Well, and I think that's really interesting, and I can definitely see that as a as a parent whose kids played, uh, you know, competitive softball and in the turf. Everything's becoming more and more organized, and there's more and more tournaments, and and and, and it's becoming more and more high level. They don't play in the old cow pasture like we did back in the day. I mean, these are very high end fields and complexes that these kids play in today. It is, and there's a lot of effort and a lot of work put in those fields, especially to deal with the amount of traffic, because those fields are typically being used from 8 in the morning till 10 at night, and they have to be safe. They have to be ready for every game, whether it's baseball, football, soccer, uh, ultimate frisbee. Our little local, not little local, it's a pretty good-sized local um, rec center actually has the World Cup for Quidditch of all things. Wow. <laughs> so it, it's, it, it, it's really hard to tell where this, this monster's going to go. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring up those other sports, and it just it sheds a different light on how big this industry truly is. I mean, obviously, when you think about sports turf, my head, being a kid from the Midwest, uh, I go right to football. Uh, but, but, boy, think about the explosion of soccer, really, in the last 25 years. Of course, the baseball and softball thing's always a standard, but then you have field hockey, specifically even up in the north, northeast U.S., really strong up there, but really expanding all across the country. But to these unique sports that you just mentioned, my goodness, it's, it's really exploding. It is. Um, you know, I mean, it's, and it's not, it's not very uncommon to have a, an all-purpose field in a lot of locations where that field does football. And then immediately after the football game's done, they, they start a soccer match. And then when the soccer match is done, they start a lacrosse match. So it, it's just a never-ending, nonstop opportunity for these guys. And, and at times, it's, it's a big struggle for these, these folks um, to put together a good quality playing field. Well, clearly one of the biggest areas that's very important for sports fields, especially when you're dealing with younger kids, high school, but even college and pros, is, is safety. Uh, what kind of trends are you and your colleagues picking up in this specific area as it relates to sports turf? Safety is the number one paramount item that all sports field managers, managers are looking for and looking to provide. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different world from, from some of the other recreational turf markets where it's purely aesthetics. As long as it looks good, we're happy. Mm -hmm. That is not the case in sports field management. 
safety is number one, aesthetics come in number two. Typically, if the safety's there, aesthetics are going to be very much on course. But we've had a trend in the last few years that especially municipal fields are going over to artificial um, turf. And it's been, it's been about 10 or 12 years, I guess, Bill, since that trend really started. And sure. we're starting to see more natural turf coming in and replacing what that artificial brought in. Um, and the reasoning for that is it's not, it's not so much about how much it costs to maintain, it's about the safety of the player. And it is proven that on an artificial field, um, a, a player is about 2.9 times greater of a chance of getting an injury from the waist down. So that's going to be a hip, a knee, an ankle, or whatever the case may be, just because of the, the nature of artificial turf. And then the, the impacts, especially hard contact sports, football, soccer, lacrosse, those type sports, there's not much give in that field. And when a player hits it full force, there's just it's not as soft as what natural grass can give. So we're seeing in the 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 pros as well as collegiately and, and it's trickling its way down now to the the um, letterman type sports, the high schools, the the younger grades they're they're transitioning away from that artificial just for that safety factor yeah definitely you know if you're a high school superintendent athletic director you can see oh on the front end that you know uh, artificial turf is really appealing from a maintenance standpoint you can put a lot of sports on it but to your point from a safety perspective the other thing too that's very interesting is in certain markets that stuff can heat up pretty good, uh, especially if you're playing games early in the fall and you still get those 100-degree days. It can get pretty warm. In some markets, that's just not feasible. But in others, it might be a decent option. Correct. Um, my middle son plays collegiate soccer, and we had we had the travel or club soccer coming up through the levels, and there was several times during the summer in matches we'd have to take two or three pair of cleats because he would melt the bottoms off of a wow. pair being on the field. I mean, the artificials, you know, you can see, you can see information all the time. A, a 94, 95 degree day, that artificial turf can easily reach temperatures of 140 degrees, where a natural field's gonna be somewhere around 104, maybe 106 degrees. So that aspect is definitely in play as well. So you've, you've really gotta watch your athletes for heat exhaustion, which is another issue. You know, once a, once a player gets exhausted and they're still trying to exert themselves and extend themselves competitively, that just adds more opportunity. And it keeps coming back to that safety issue and it can trickle down effect is huge. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about uh, turnaround times. You, you referenced uh, the turnaround time to get a field ready. You know, we college seasons just opened last weekend for most uh, college football teams across the nation. We chatted earlier about, you know, gosh, all the rain going on. We had a lot of delays, I know, at the Mississippi State-Memphis game and Auburn. And I know you got a pretty big storm down there in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. So tell us about turning that stuff around in football. You know, you come back and play next week. But in other sports, you might have to play the next day or two. Correct. And, you know, let, let's kind of start with that collegiate football and, and even throw the pro football mentality in there. 
that that sports field manager's looking, and most people don't realize it, but as soon as that game is over, whether it's 11.30, 12 o'clock, there's you know, some of the delays they were talking. Mm-hmm. They didn't play a college football game until sometime on Sunday by the time the clock got done. As soon as that field, they can get the field cleared, they start preparation for the next week. They're out there mowing, and that gives them the opportunity to get every possible minute they can to have that field prepared for the next Saturday or the next, sometimes it's even on Thursday. You know, now that we have Thursday night games. So well, the yeah, pros and TV's and the, impacting and that, right? So that's going to drive the dollar. It's phenomenal. And, and you have to make sure as a manager, you've done everything you possibly can nutritionally, um, you know, through water, through all of those items to make sure that field has every opportunity to bounce back as much as possible. The last thing we want to do is see one of these guys blow out a knee because they hit a bad spot or an ankle roll. And it could, you know, could be something very simple. And unfortunately, it happens. But these these sports field managers start immediately following the game in preparation for next week's game. Wow. Chris, tell us a little bit about some of the product solutions that you and your team are bringing to uh, sports turf managers uh, across the country as it relates to supporting the strength of, of some of the turf and the pressure that they take. They, it, it, we attack it from, from two points, Bill. One, there's a, a point that we're trying to go in through the leaf blade where we're pre-stress. You know, before that, that game happens, before that concert, a lot of people don't think about the concert causing a lot of stress. But you cover a natural turf grass field for a week with plywood, it's going to come out struggling. You know, so one of the products we've been very successful in using preventatively is Orbix, and we pump that plant full of amino acids, full of opportunities for that plant to operate at its optimum level, no matter what you throw at it. Now, it is not a silver bullet, there's no question, but it is one of those products that has tremendously helped give our customers the opportunity to provide the best they can on a week, week by week and daily basis. And then the other side of it is we're looking at soil structure. Anything we can do to increase the root mass, the depth, the density of those roots. Because as a player, whether you're playing football or baseball or soccer, whatever it is, when you put your cleat in the ground and turn, you want to know that you're going to turn. You're not going to slide. So anything we can do, and we use products like Resurge, Resurge Professional, or Zypro, a, a um, enzyme material to get those nutrients in the soil into solutions that those plants can can consume them and give us the best possible stand. Well, that's awesome. And there's a lot of products like that that are certainly help those athletes out and those turf uh, managers, you know, really build a safer uh, field for those athletes to be playing on. Chris, tell us a little bit about technology and how is uh, technology from your team and your colleagues starting to impact sports fields? This is a, is a very uncharted area. for it's, it's becoming more so charted in the, in the last couple of years, Bill, but a program like RX360, you know, we, we have the ability to get very specific as far as tissue sampling, as far as water quality, as far as nutrient management. 
And a, a product like Preville, which falls under the, the RX360 umbrella or the AccuPoint underneath that RX360 umbrella, with AccuPoint, we're able to go in and geo-reference exact spots, and that way we can set a baseline for that field. So the areas between the 10 and the 20 are going to act completely different than the areas around the logo in the center of the field. So we're able to help that manager provide exactly what's needed, where it's needed, instead of just blanket going out and throwing the nutrients. That's tremendous when it comes to environmental stewardship. That's tremendous when it comes to exposure to players, whether they're six years old, just strapping on the cleats for the first time, or they're 35 years old, or in Tom Brady's case, 45 years old, strapping on the cleats for what might possibly be his last season. Who knows? Um, but, But we're able to utilize those resources to their fullest potential and know what we're putting down when we're putting it down is absolutely what's needed by that that stand of turf. Wow. Chris, uh, a lot of great information here. What does the future look like, in your opinion, for the sports, sports turf industry? The future right now is amazing. One of the big issues that, that the industry faces is enough people to man those opportunities, to man those positions. Um, I, I referenced my middle son earlier. His actual his goal, once he completes his college education, is to go into sports field management. Um, you know, we all as kids dream of being the the pro running out of the tunnel onto the field and everybody cheering. And it's just not a reality for so many people. So he sees his opportunity to obtain obtain that goal to still be a very active part of the soccer world is taking his opportunities in managing those fields and I'm really looking forward to him doing that uh, there's a lot of a lot of good conversation between a turf grass operations degree to a sure. potential candidate um, but the, the 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 industry as a whole it is so easy to go out on Saturday or Sunday and see those families who may have traveled four or five 12 hours to go to a soccer tournament or to a softball tournament, or to a baseball tournament. This isn't going away. This is only getting bigger. And these kids are, uh, you know, I, I say these kids, these young people who are, who are participating in these travel clubs for, for their respective sports are just getting better and better and better. And, and we in the United States, as, as um, consumers of sports, are only going to benefit from that because all of our sports quality is getting so much better and stronger because of this. So the sky's the limit as far as I see it right now, Bill. I do think that that 7.2% growth year over year that's being estimated is being very conservative. I think we're going to see more municipalities put in these fields because it's a great opportunity for whether it's a county or a city to get an investment or a, a revenue train going in hosting these events. So there's a oh, yeah. tremendous amount of opportunity today. The economic growth opportunities for quality sports fields like you've just d- described is 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 huge. I've so- served on several boards over my career for sports turf fields and complexes. The trickle-down economics of this is huge. Uh, 
especially if once you start considering hotels and restaurants, and uh, it is definitely huge for a lot of communities. Chris, tell us, uh, you referenced uh, your son and his career aspirations. We just had some folks on from Iowa State and Clemson University uh, talking about the demand, the demand for talent in this space. How, how are, how, Chris, how is the Sports Field Management Association, you know, what what is their mission and how are they, you know, trying to, I guess, enhance and contribute to, you know, filling some of these roles? Uh, the, the Sports Field Managers Association mission is very simple, Bill, to be honest, is to advance professionalism in sports turf management with a strong emphasis on safety through education and awareness programs and helping to build that industry. And a lot of these associations, these professional associations, offer many opportunities, whether it be scholarships, whether it be internships, um, even just summer jobs. There's there's a, a select group of people who enjoy building something or turning something from dirt to striped grass. Um, there's just there's something so rewarding about doing that watching your field on tv you know there's there's always that opportunity as well now that's a very select few people who get that opportunity but these associations are trying they're reaching out to local ffas uh, even as young as the 4-h club trying to get people young people involved and see that there is an opportunity because we have those, those vocational opportunities that have kind of somewhat taken a backseat to the more, to the liberal arts. These vocational opportunities, whether it be welding or you know, some sort of mechanical position, and I'm gonna throw turf grass managers in, in that as well. There's a lot to be learned and there's a lot of rewarding opportunities. We just have to expose these young people, whether we get active at the high school level, even the junior high level, uh, d- never discount an opportunity to go speak to a 4-H club or an FFA group or a, a high school job fair opportunity because there's, there's a lot of folks out there who could really benefit from looking and knowing that there is an industry that it, it's simplifying it, obviously, but there's, there's a way to grow grass and make a good living. That's right. Chris, really want to thank you for joining us here today on FieldLink and sharing us your insight as it relates to sports turf. And it's an exciting time of the year. We're all uh, flipping the channels and watching a lot of football right now. And uh, we appreciate all that you and your team does to help make those fields safe for our, our youth. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, Bill. It's been a pleasure. We want to thank everybody for joining us here today on this special collegiate edition of FieldLink. We look forward to having you join us next time.